Well, you can turn in your Bibles to Titus chapter 1. If you have the Pew Bibles, that is on page 998. And I would invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word, and please pay attention to God's Holy Word. Titus chapter 1, verse 1. I'm going to read the whole chapter and also read chapter 2, verse 1. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God, our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord, our Savior. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, for an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. <clears throat> Father, as we prayed in the beginning of the service, and we, as we ask you throughout, would you speak? Would we hear your voice this morning through your word that we might obey you and that you might be glad, that you might be glorified in us and through us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> I grew up watching my mom fix things, and it was mostly things that I had broken. <laughs> and I don't know if it was the farm girl in her. Uh, my mom could jimmy rig anything. She could fix anything. And I don't have any like specific thing in mind, but I, I 
I remember at one point some electronics and some wiring, something that I was just like, I just remember like saying like, how did you do that? And I remember always being constantly in awe of how my mom could just fix anything. And I think uh, I must have learned from her because I'm a fixer, uh, I'm a problem solver, and that can be a good thing. Uh, we live in a fallen world. There are lots of things to fix. There are lots of broken things. There are lots of problems that need solving. Uh, for me, it's nice. I don't usually have to pay someone to come out to my house uh, to fix something. If the trap on my furnace is, is plugged, I call my brother-in-law, who's an HVAC guy, and he says, oh, yeah, just you know, pull it out, dump it out. Save me 100 bucks right there. So it's nice to be able to do those things. YouTube is a lifesaver, okay? Like you go look something up on YouTube. I thought my water heater was broken. It's just some rust that like landed on this part. Pull it out, piece of cake. Like probably save me another hundred bucks, right? So that can really be a, a good thing to be able to, to fix things, to solve problems. But like anything that can be good, there's also a flip side to it, right? It can be a bad thing because I can rely on myself and my own abilities, or I can get frustrated when I can't fix things, when I can't fix other people, or I can't fix situations, right? Or I can't fix um, like maybe a place that I live, living overseas for 10 years. There were lots of things that I was like, man, I wish I could fix this, right? Or I wish this could be different. Or living, coming back to the States, living here in Oshkosh, thinking, oh, I wish these things about the culture were different. That's outside of my control. I can't fix those things. I am not the Messiah. Well, maybe you can relate a little bit to that. Uh, maybe you've got a little bit of that fixer mentality. Uh, but even if, if not, uh, we can all admit that we live in a broken world. We live in a world that needs fixing. Our institutions are broken, our government, our businesses, our churches, our families, and we all are individually broken. We need to be able to admit that. And that can feel totally overwhelming at times, feeling like I can't even fix myself, right? Like, how am I going to fix all of these other things? But the good news is that there is someone who can fix what is broken. And though it's not always according to our timeline or according to our desires, and I think that's a lot of times where the rub comes in for us. Paul wrote this letter to Timothy about a situation that needed fixing. It needed immediate attention. But before we're introduced to the problem here, let's look at Paul's greeting to Titus in verses 1 to 4. And I want us to put ourselves in the shoes of a believer in the early church who would have heard this greeting. Because really, it's addressed to us as those in the church today just as much as it was addressed to them. The things that are true about God here in this greeting in verses 1 to 4 must shape the way that we think about addressing problems in the church and in our own lives. Just want to highlight a few of the key things. If you look with me there, verses one, specifically verses one to three, Paul opens up by talking about how he is a servant of God. He's an apostle of Jesus Christ, the authority that he has been given. Uh, you see this kind of dual reality that he's a servant, first, first and foremost, then he's also apostle. So there's this idea of, of service and being lowly, but then there's this idea of his authority as a, an apostle. And then he says all of this, it's for the sake of the faith of God's elect. So that is, Paul has been given this authority. He's been given this role of service in order that 
the faith of God's elect would grow, that they would grow in their knowledge of the truth, he says, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, verse two, which God who never lies promised before the ages began. So he points us backwards that this hope of eternal life is something that God promised before the ages began. So this goes all the way back, right? God has promised this. And then look at verse three, at the proper time, he manifested or he revealed it in his word through the preaching, which with I, with which I have been entrusted by the command of God, our savior. So promised before the ages manifested now in his word in time, in the proper time. So it's kind of this, this, again, this kind of dual reality that's promised beforehand. It's fulfilled now in time. And that is this hope of eternal life that we have. I think that phrase there, hope of eternal life is key. We're going to see it a little bit towards the end. Denny Burke in his commentary says of Paul that his ultimate goal is not merely to convert people, but to see them through to glorification, to the day when they inherit eternal life in the age to come. So he's talking about the role of elders here. This is our job as elders. It's to see you through to glorification. In other words, we are here to prepare you for heaven. This is our job in teaching and preaching and shepherding. It's to see you through to glorification. It's not just to get you in the door and get you saved and then say, peace out. Like, nice knowing you. No, it's to see you on step by step all the way through your journey to glorification. So as we get into and start looking at some of the more nitty gritty details of elders qualifications and duties, let's not lose sight of this bigger picture of kind of what is going on, what God is up to and what he calls elders to do. So Paul here, he combines this big picture emphasis of what God is up to with the nitty gritty details as he reminds Titus that God is the one who is going to straighten things out in Crete because he has a glorious plan that he is working out for our good. Uh, It doesn't mean that Titus doesn't have a role to play. He clearly does. And that's primarily why Paul is writing. Look at verse five. This is why. Okay, this is why I left you in Crete so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Clearly, things were not in order in Crete, which we see very clearly in verses 10 through 16. And we're going to be looking at that in a little bit, but things were not in order. Um, I like William Hendrickson's translation of this verse. He says, um, this is why I left you in Crete that you might straighten out the things that remain to be done. So put in order, straighten out either way. I like, the, I like the phrase straightening things out. Basically, it means that things were crooked. Things were out of whack in Crete, and there was more work to be done. And that's always true in our lives, and it's always true in our churches. There's always more work to be done. We've never arrived that That path to glorification is going to be a long, winding road sometimes. There's going to be lots of ups and downs. There's going to be peaks and valleys. But before we look exactly at what it was that Titus was being asked by Paul to straighten out, I want to remind us of where we're at as a church and why we're doing this series. 
This is not because there's a bunch of glaring problems at, in the church and the session said, well, we need to address these things and we need to straighten everybody out. This is proactive, not reactive. We're, we're getting ahead of this thing and saying, this is, this is how we've been established. This is what God is doing here. This is how he has called the elders to shepherd the flock. And in a sense, we've already done what Titus is tasked with here. We have appointed elders. You might still have some questions, though. We went through that whole process of particularization, especially if you're not from a Presbyterian background and you can't even spell or pronounce Presbyterian or particularization. These are big words, right? You might have questions like, who can be an elder? What are the qualifications or the requirements for an elder? And what do you guys even do anyways, right? Like, you guys just like go out and have coffee all day and just have meetings? Is that all you do? Well, Titus 1 very clearly addresses this, as do 1 Timothy chapter 3, 1 Peter chapter 5, which uh, James preached on a couple weeks ago, Acts chapter 20. Those are some of the key places that look at the role of elders. This week, we're going to look specifically at the responsibilities and the qualifications of elders. Next week, we're going to look at the role of the congregation toward elders. So the whole focus here is on shepherding the flock. We have been given as elders a task to know and to lead and to feed and to protect the flock. And it's ultimately Jesus who does that. That's why we started this whole series with John chapter 10. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. But he has appointed under shepherds. He has appointed pastors and elders to carry out this work in the church. And it's important that we understand this as elders and as a congregation. We must be guided by the scriptures as we seek to do this. So just a little more context for how we got to where we're at as a church today. Uh, we're coming up on our four-year anniversary as a church on October 1st. Um, we started off, yeah, praise God. We started off as a church plant. We had a provisional session, uh, which were elders from other churches who served on our session, which is our, our elder team. And the goal was that we would raise up and train up our own elders from within our congregation. That's part of what it means to become particularized. You have to have your own elders. So we took nominations in early 2020, and then we spent 10 months in 2020, and then up until the end of January 2021, and we did officer training. There was a lot of reading, uh, a lot of discussion, a lot of meetings, and we kind of broke our training down into three parts, um, heart, head, and hands. So if you look at the front of your worship guide there, our, our kind of mission statement as a church is a community of Christ followers called to know, love, and serve God and others. We talk about this all the time. Head, right? Knowing, heart, loving, and hands serving. We want to have a holistic approach to ministry here. And so as we went through our elder training, that was a huge focus, how we can, in, with head, heart, and hands, how we can serve the Lord and how we can serve the congregation. In the heart section, which is what we um, started off with, we took a lot of time to go through these different passages. We went through some different books that kind of unpacked these passages like Titus 1 and 1 Timothy 3, and we looked at the qualifications of elders. This is one of the books that we did, Gospel Eldership. <clears throat> Excuse me. 
And this was a really challenging book to go through because it walked through all these different categories and there were questions, questions that we could fill out and answer and share with each other and talk about how are we doing in each one of these categories. And it was a really revealing time, I think, for all of us. And one of the things that's really helpful in this book, he has a, a triangle, three C's, talks about character, competence, and compatibility. So character is who are you? Like, who are you as a man seeking to be an elder? What, how do you live your life? Competence is the, is the hands part. So the character is the heart. Competence is, is the, the head and the hands, right? Like, how do you carry out these, these tasks? And then the third element that was really helpful is compatibility. Compatibility, and I think this is really key because this is what this sermon series is focused on. We're talking a lot about our philosophy of ministry here at Livingstone. What is it that guides us? So really, that's, that's a big emphasis for us. And in the compatibility section, he talks about philosophy of ministry. And this is what he says. He says, an individual may possess the necessary knowledge or skill and have a tremendous heart and love for Christ, yet not be appropriate for a particular context. There are a number of things to disagree about in the ministry, and I believe it is perfectly healthy to do so. However, when it comes to the vision, values, and mission of the ministry and the ways in which a particular local church has chosen to exercise her call, a person who does not believe in the church's philosophy of ministry will constantly need to be talked into rather than moving forward together. I'm so thankful for the men that God has raised up because we are on the same page in terms of philosophy of ministry and how God is calling us to shepherd the flock here. I've witnessed incompatibility in terms of philosophy of ministry on my time on the mission field on different teams, and it can be terrible, right? It can be destructive. And this is why I, you've heard me say this before, and I will repeat this phrase until my dying day. Culture eats strategy for breakfast, okay? Culture eats strategy for breakfast. What does that mean? It means that the, your philosophy of ministry, the culture of your organization, the character behind everything that you do is always going to trump the strategy. It's always going to trump the planning. Like we could bring in a bunch of people like CEOs of all these companies who have done all this strategy and all this planning. But if they're on a totally different page from where we're going philosophy of ministry wise, it's going to be a train wreck. Culture eats strategy for breakfast. So praise God that he has raised up elders who are like-minded, who in terms of philosophy ministry are seeking in one accord to lead and shepherd this congregation in the same manner. So if Paul here, back to Titus, if Paul is writing to Titus to straighten things out and to put them in order, we can safely assume that there is a need for things to stay straightened out, right? To not get crooked, to stay in order. So what kind of person then is tasked with this straightening and keeping things straight in the church? It's not a secretary. It's not an administrative pastor. It's not a board of trustees. It's not some bishop who comes by once a quarter to say, hey guys, how are things going? No, it is a plurality of elders called and equipped by God to shepherd the flock that is under their care. 
So first, we must look at the character requirements. Paul first focuses on what can be seen. What is external evidence of internal character? We see this by the repeating of the phrase above reproach at the beginning of verse 6 and then at the end of the first sentence in verse 7. To be above reproach literally means that one cannot be called to account. They are blameless. Now, we have to be careful here because this doesn't mean perfect or nobody would ever be an elder. But the standards are very high. The next thing we see is husband of one wife. The Greek here literally reads one woman man. We are complementarian in the PCA. The Bible nowhere speaks of female elders. It is clearly an office that is only for men. It also speaks of how a man must lead his household. First Timothy 3 says that if a man cannot lead his own household, how can he lead the household of God? Here, the emphasis is on that the children are believers or that they are faithful. In other words, there should be evidence from a man's home that he, from his home life, that he can lead in the church. Now, by nature of this calling, his family life is under greater scrutiny. His marriage and his children are under a microscope. Now, sadly, and I'm not speaking of any of you or anything here, but this can often be weaponized by those in the church against the elder, elders and their families. You must, as a congregation, you must not do this. Okay, you must hold us to these standards, but if that means like one of my kids does one little thing that you know you don't like, you don't go around and gossip to the whole church and say, "Can you believe the pastor's kid did this?" Right? Like that is something that you need to guard against. If there's an issue, you come to me, right? You come to me and talk about those things. If there's an issue with one of the elders, something in his marriage, something in his parenting, you go to him and you talk to him as you should, right? We are held to a very high standard. You go and you, you approach us and you come to us. You don't sow seeds of, of dissent and discord saying, oh, can you believe so-and-so did such and such, right? Okay. And I say this because being an elder, being a pastor can be very isolating. We need your support and your prayers and your encouragement and your biblical confrontation as much as we need, or, you know, we need all of those things. We don't need unnecessary strife and division. And, and I think the balance between the encouragement and the support and then being held accountable, that can be a very delicate balance. Well, Paul goes on then in the second half of verse 7 and verse 8 to list some negative characteristics that elders must not have. Look with me at verse 7. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain. Those are the negative things. He follows it then by a list of positive things that he must exhibit. He must be hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. If you are a young man in the congregation and you are reading this list and you think to yourself, 
sign me up. I've got this. I've got all these things down. You should be very afraid. <laughs> these verses should terrify you. And there is a tremendous paradox here, especially compared with worldly measures of success in leadership. We see all of the leadership guru books and the conferences. We hear some of our favorite athletes talk about leadership, and so much of it is focused on self. If you're a Packer fan and you're going to be watching the game this afternoon, if you're watching your favorite player lining up across from another player who wants to knock his head off, that guy better be pretty confident in his own abilities, right? Or he better get off the field. But we cannot transfer that mentality, as good as that is in that setting, we cannot transfer that into leadership in the church. Our confidence, our confidence must be in Christ and in Christ alone, not in ourselves. Not, well, I went to such and such a seminary, and I've read all these books, and I know this celebrity pastor, right, because he's in my denomination, and blah, 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 like all those things. Our confidence is not in those things. As elders, we must look at this list and realize that in our own strength, if there is any self-anything involved, we will fall flat on our faces. We must stand firm in the grace of God and his grace alone and find our identity in Christ and in Christ alone. And you can hold us accountable to that, okay? That's what we are called to do. And that is because there is a very difficult task before us. We are ill-equipped to carry it out if our lives are not lived in utter dependence upon the Spirit of God. One thing that I do want to highlight is that the struggle to live the Christian life in this fallen world is something that we are all called to do. Chapters 2 and 3 in Titus, which I would encourage you to go home and read, are instructions to all believers. The elders are to lead by example, and while some of our responsibilities are not shared by the rest of the church, the challenge is to hear the voice of our good shepherd and not be led astray by wolves and false teachers is something that we all equally face. So that's really where Paul focuses his energy for the rest of this chapter. The issues in Crete are pretty intense and the elders have a weighty task before them. Look at what he says in verse nine. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. I want you to notice something here. The responsibility of an elder to teach is derivative. He is not the teacher. Jesus is the teacher. The elder derives his teaching authority from Jesus. Just as the elder is not the shepherd, Jesus is the shepherd, the elder is an under-shepherd. So we could say the elder is an under-teacher. The elder holds firm to the trustworthy word as taught. He must recognize that he is first the recipient of the teaching. So that, what? 
he may be able to give instruction and in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. This, the, the elder is really a student, first of all. Those of you who are in or have been in education majors, the last semester of school, what do you do? Student teaching, right? And I never really thought about this that much before, but that's a great description. Student teaching, because you're still a student and you're learning how to teach. Elders never graduate from this school, okay? We're never on our own, on our own authority. We are always student teachers. We never arrive. Christ is the teacher, and we always remain under his authority. We, we, we shadow him, right? We walk with him, and we teach as he teaches. We never are like, okay, I've graduated from the school of Jesus, right? Now I'm going to go, like, start my own church. No, that's not how it works. It's stated here what the elder is to do then in terms of teaching. It's stated two ways, both positively and negatively. Positively, he is to give instruction in sound doctrine. The reason why we read into chapter two is because that's how chapter two starts off. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. What follows there in chapter two highlights the giving of instruction in sound doctrine to the flock. That's what Titus was supposed to do. And that's really what the focus of the rest of Titus is. Negatively, then, what does it say in verse 9? To rebuke those who contradict it. Rebuking those who contradict the sound teaching makes up the rest of chapter 1, verses 10 through 16. So I want us to look at the negative first, and then we'll look at the positive. So the negative is what Paul addresses here, the situation that has prompted this letter to Titus. The reason why the elders were necessary to straighten things out in Crete is because there are a whole bunch of people who were negatively influencing the Christians there. And these are probably Jews who are teaching. Paul addresses some of these things in First uh, and Second Timothy. There are things related to food laws and, and rules about marriage that are not according to scripture that we're being taught. Those are probably some of the things that are going on here. Paul then gives this list in verse 10 and 12 and the end of 16, which are the exact opposite of the things that are required of elders. Look at them. Verse 10, there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers. Verse 12, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. End of verse 16, they are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. And then he explains what they are doing in verse 11. He says, they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. And Paul does not pull any punches here. What does he say? Verse 11, they must be silenced. End of verse, or middle of verse 13. Therefore, rebuke them sharply. So Paul here is giving elders permission to be bullies, right? Just go around and tell everyone how wrong they are. Get in everybody's face about every little jot and tittle of doctrine. No. Because the word, well, first of all, the word violent here in verse 
that's used in verse 7 is something that an elder must not be. This word that, that's used, um, verse 7, he must not be arrogant, quick-tempered, drunker, or violent. That's, that word could be translated bully. An elder is not supposed to be bully, but physically or with his words. We have to be careful, though, that we don't read one passage like this and not compare it to other similar instructions. So where, where we see here um, that they need to be silenced, that we need to rebuke them sharply, there is a time and a place for that, right? But we also need to compare that to other scriptures. Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy, which is the last letter that he wrote just before he died. And in chapter 3, he warns Timothy about the difficult times that are coming in the last days. And he gives this long list of vices, all these things. And he tells Timothy to avoid such people, to stay away from these types of people. But just before that, in chapter 2, he gives some very helpful instructions for how to engage in controversies similar to what Titus and the elders in Crete are dealing with. Listen carefully. This is 2 Timothy 2, 23 through 26. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome. One of the um, things in 1 Timothy 3, that elders must not be quarrelsome. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. In Paul's mind, the correction of the opponents is not to wreck them in an argument. It's not to go on, you know, YouTube and have some like encounter and like, oh, we destroyed them, right, in this debate. But it's to win them for Christ. Because God is merciful. God may perhaps grant them repentance. Because God is merciful. If you're a jerk... You're getting in the way of the work God's trying to do in this person's heart. And we must remember that we were them. We were the opponents of the gospel before we were in Christ. We were those who needed to be silenced. If you want to be an elder in the church because you think, I know everything and I'm going to correct everybody who's wrong, you better first start with, Jesus corrected me when I was wrong, right? So I need to be gentle with those who are wrong. And sometimes really seriously wrong, right? Back to verse 13. Why are they to be rebuked sharply? So that they may be sound in the faith. Sound is one of Paul's favorite words to use in the pastoral epistles. First and second Timothy and Titus. We see... If you look at verse uh, 7 there, you see the word, uh, sorry, not verse 7, it's footnote number 7. Where is it? Verse 6? No, the other sound. Verse 10? Is that where it is? No. 
Anyways, oh, verse, verse nine, I'm sorry. It's footnote number seven on verse number nine. To give instruction in sound doctrine, if you look down at the footnote there, it says, or healthy, okay? The root word for this word that could be translated healthy is hugies. Can anybody guess what English word we get from hugies? Nice, not quite. Let me spell, let me spell the transliteration, H-Y-G-I-E-S, hygiene. As I typed in the word, transliterated word, hugies in Greek, my autocorrect went to hygiene, okay? We get the word hygiene from this word, sound or healthy, healthy doctrine, right? So brush your teeth, wash your face, right? Good, good hygiene. We need, this is how we need to think about sound doctrine. It's something that needs to be worked on, right? Something that needs to be continually cleaned and, and kept healthy. One commentary has an especially helpful explanation of what this looks like. They write, people can err either on the side of harsh narrow-mindedness or lax permissiveness. The promotion of truth necessitates a balance between compassion and integrity. In Titus, the goal is health, healthy faith and healthy teaching. Good health necessitates honest diagnosis and a rigorous program of avoiding unhealthy habits and foods and promoting healthy habits and foods. In the same way, spiritual health requires individuals, Titus, and groups of people, elders, who are vigilant to do something about teachings that turn people away from the faith. Frequently, the word that's used for rebuke in the Greek is balanced off by the word, which some of you know, parakaleo, it's the word to encourage. Those words, rebuke and encourage, are balanced out because a good physician promotes health and discourages sickness. A good physician promotes health and discourages sickness. If you go to your doctor and they only ever tell you good things and don't sometimes, like I know some people who go to the doctor and the doctors are like yelling at them, right? Because like, why are you doing this thing I told you not to do? Like, that's their job. They need to do that, right? They need to promote that good health and they need to discourage the sickness. I think elder care and pastoral care must also be balanced out by these two elements. We are here to support you and to encourage you and to warn you and to rebuke you when you are walking in sin. That's our job. We're not trying to be jerks. We're not trying to control your lives. But God has given us a task to care for your souls. And that are the, those are the two sides of that same coin. And the key in that, though, is that it's not based on our own standards. It's not just based on our preferences. It's based on the instruction in sound doctrine because we ourselves are holding firm to the trustworthy word as taught. We're not making up our own rules. We're not going and grabbing a whole bunch of verses and throwing them together and say, oh, you need to do this thing because like that just sounds good to me. So whether it is teaching in the form of preaching from the pulpit on Sunday mornings, whether it's teaching at the Sunday night service, whether it's leading a community group, whether it's one-on-one -on -one discipleship, this is the approach that our elders need to have as those who are tasked with keeping watch over your souls, which we're going to be looking at next week in Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews 13, 7 to 19 will be our text for next week, so you can go ahead and prepare and read that. 
But again, I want to encourage the young men among us who may one day have an opportunity to be elders. Look for opportunities now to grow in your character and your competency in these areas, knowing that sound living and sound teaching go hand in hand. And I shouldn't say only younger men. Sorry, if you're older and you're aspiring to be an elder, you're in that category too. Paul wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.16, keep a close eye on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Now, clearly, Paul is not saying that we are the ones who do the saving. He makes that clear here in Titus chapter 3. This is one of my favorite summaries of the gospel, and I want to close by reading this. Titus chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. The first couple of verses talk about what God calls all Christians in the church to, which again, we'll talk about next Sunday. And then it reminds us of the beautiful truth of the gospel, what God has done for us in Christ. And it comes back to this theme that we started with of the hope of eternal life. God is the one who must straighten us out. God is the one who must fix us. So let's hear how he has done this in Christ. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, Slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. And the greatest word in the Bible, it's in here and it's in Ephesians 2, 4. But, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared. If you can't look at your life as having lived out versus what is talked about in verse 3 and then see the, the reality of but God, what he has done for you in Christ, then I don't know what to say, but you need to get there, okay? You need to realize that you were the one who was in sin. You were the one who was dead in your transgressions, and God straightened you out in Christ. When the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. We have the hope of eternal life in Christ. He saved us when we were crooked, when we were on the crooked path. He straightened us out. He put us on the narrow path. He saved us by his grace. Praise God. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for what you have done for us in Christ. God, when we were dead, when we were your enemies, when we were running our own way, when we were rebellious, you snatched us off that path. You put us on the straight path. God, as we think about 
this life, this journey, preparing us, this, this hope of eternal life that we are preparing for, for our glorification. As we think about the task of elders to shepherd the church, to shepherd our souls in this task. God, we thank you. We thank you for how you have so ordered your church. We thank you that Jesus, the good shepherd, the good teacher, he cares for us, that he teaches us, that he shepherds us. We thank you for the under shepherds and the under teachers who you have called to serve in your church, to lead and feed and protect, care for your flock. God, may we all see clearly that that is the way you have ordained it, the way you have established your church. May we all be in, in right understanding and right relationship in those roles. May we honor our elders. May the elders, God, have strength from you and your spirit to love and serve the flock as under shepherds to walk closely with Christ so that they can do the work that you've called them to do. Lord, give us wisdom. Give us humility. May we be challenged by these words here in Titus chapter one. May we seek to teach and preach and lead and feed in a way that is according to your word as taught, not according to our own understanding. And God, may you build your church. May you be glorified. Pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.